Dropping at the movies. I'm Mike. And I'm Jose. And today we've seen Avatar The Way of Water for a second time. Yes. Uh, I think I'd said in the first podcast that there were high frame rate screenings in the area. Well, I say in the area, I think it was Peterborough. There was one available. The NEC, which I know has high frame rate capability, didn't appear to be showing it. And I, I'm not sure I would have wanted to see it there anyway because I remember that screen being really small mm. and it would not have shown off Avatar. Um, the way it needs to be shown off. So we took a trip to London today to see the yes. BFI IMAX, the biggest screen in the country, having confirmed... I mean, it was annoying that I had to confirm on Twitter and ask questions of the various IMAX... Manchester's got an IMAX as well. Are they showing it in high frame rate? Because we'd done this talking on, on Facebook, this discussion of, actually, how is it being shown? I, I'd seen somewhere, just kind of a rumour, from someone who'd like spoken to an exhibitor that... Disney had instructed, Disney now owns 20th Century Studios, so it's Disney film, Disney had instructed cinemas not to show the high frame rate version if they had it because people were complaining about it, things like that, which meant I just had no idea and cinema websites didn't show clear information about Mm. what actually they were showing. Mm. But I confirmed that um, at the IMAX in London and indeed at the one in Manchester, although I'd already bought the tickets in London by that point, Mm. They are showing it in high frame rate. That's mm. what I wanted to see, right? Yes. So I dragged you down, dragged you out of bed at four thirty in the morning <gasps> for a nine o'clock screening. Yes. To make sure we got into London good and early, um, and didn't hit traffic that kept us from seeing it, which we didn't. We got there two hours early, and it was marvelous, fantastic. Mm. We already thought it looked incredible on the IMAX Digital in Birmingham, where we saw it first. I can't believe the snootiness of. Uh of friends really on Facebook because after all kind of you know most of my friends are involved in film in one way or another and you know one would think that for professional reasons alone they'd be like dying to see it really Mm. the whole experience is is incredible uh you know it, it looks the film looks astonishing on an IMAX the use of 3D is phenomenal I still can't get my head around the the frame rate thing. Yes, it's yep. funny. We, t- we discussed after the film, you said, you know, because it's been, what, two, three hours since we saw it. No, God, it's nearly five o'clock. It's been five hours since the film finished. Yes. Um, and you were like, I don't want to just wait until the podcast to talk, so let's have a chat. And you said you didn't realise that it was switching between 24, which is normal, and 48 frames per second, which yes. is the high frame rate. To me, it was incredibly obvious. Yes, I, I, I just couldn't. And I was looking for ways, because obviously I knew that it did. Mm. And I was looking for, for ways of figuring that out. Uh, and Andrew had, had, had told us of the jerkiness you know, that occurs when that happens. But actually, I didn't notice it. I just didn't. That's fascinating I mean, to me, because it seems so obvious to me. And I, and I'm not I haven't a go or anything. I just I don't think you need a particularly sophisticated or trained eye to notice it. Okay. That's just unusual to me, that's all. No. Um, well, it seems like a surprise. Um, what was it what was interesting to me is and we've you've just been looking up information about this, which is interesting, and I'll play it, is why the film was switching between twenty four and forty eight frames per second. Um and what the kind of what the schema was behind it. What I was finding was that it wasn't like a scene would be in 48 and another scene would be in 24. It was changing on the fly from shot to shot sometimes. And it didn't seem, there didn't seem to be that much of a 
kind of logical basis for what shots were and weren't in 48 frames per second. With the and that's even I, I thought oh, everything in action will be in 48 frames per second, and even then it wasn't always, and I didn't really understand why. I did kind of think, okay, so close-ups generally are being treated with 24 frames per second. And the reason for that seemed pretty clear to me that they're trying to avoid the soap opera effect, which is what 48 frames per second high frame rate footage is associated with. Um, so The Hobbit suffered from this. The Hobbit trilogy suffered from this very badly. Gemini Man had a lot of this, which is where the footage is so smooth and so clean that it actually looks cheap, like mm. cheap soap opera television. Mm. And I thought this hardly did that at all. And in fact, the only times I thought it did was when there had been so much 24 frames per second footage that when it switched back into 48, it was jarring. It was funny. There were times when it did that. And there were also times when there had been so much 48 frames per second footage that when it jumped back into 24 frames per second, it looked blurry and dim and, you know, worse. So it's funny how... In in the moment, no matter which one I was watching, I was able to get used to it mm. and then find it jarring and a bit distracting when it jumped back. I didn't notice it at all. Um, so, you know, maybe it's my astigmatism or something that prevented me from seeing it. I don't know. But what Cameron said is that all the underwater scenes, that was all 48. Shall I play his clip? Yes. Um, so this is, it's 2 minutes and 20, which is an interview with um, Yahoo!, and I'll link it, obviously. Um, this is a clip of uh, James Cameron discussing high frame rate in 3D in Avatar 2. You're in 3D again, and yeah. you have high frame rate in, yep. in the film yep. as well. 3D, I think, was perceived as a risk in 2009. Yeah. And it's sort of come back around to being perceived as a risk again now, because it's sort of fallen out of favour, I think. Well, is that really true, though? I mean, if, if you think about the way it worked back then, it was a novelty. And now it's found its its level as a consumer choice. So... At the time, we had 6,000 screens worldwide that were 3D screens, digital. Now we have 120,000. Now most big blockbuster movies are made in 3D, so people have a choice. If they like it, they can see it in 3D. If they don't like it, they can see it in 2D. And you have high frame rate this time, which I think is an art form that people are still struggling with. Well, I mean, did you struggle with it when you watched the movie last night? I didn't. The moment where I think it really flew... Was when they were underwater. So, from the you were underwater, I never questioned it. (laughs) We tried to decide how to apply it. And the rule was, whenever they're underwater, it's 48 frames. Boom. Just don't even think about it. Um, Some of the flying scenes, some of the the broad vistas benefit from 48 frames. Um, If it's just people sitting around talking or, or, you know, walking and talking, whatever, relatively slowly evolving images, it's not necessary. In fact, it's actually sometimes even counterproductive because it looks a little too glassy smooth, right? So the trick to it was to figure out where to use it and where not to use it. Now, the one thing I'll say pretty definitively, 48 frames doesn't benefit a 2D movie very much, if at all. It's really about making a better experience in 3D because sometimes the edge detection that our brains are trying to do to decode the parallax, I'm getting technical now, (laughs) um, the rapid lateral displacement causes it to strobe and it, it basically screws with our brains, right? So we wanted to get rid of that to make a better 3D experience because people used to complain about 3D. Oh, I don't like 3D. It gives me a headache. Well, why? Well, you drill down on it. This is why. It's that, it's that strobing. The 48 takes that out. But you, but I don't see it as a, a format. It's not a format like 70 millimeter. It's a tool. It's an authoring tool. 
right? So I think we got it. I think we got it in balance. I think it's definitely working. There you go. So, as you say, his um, schema seems pretty clear. It's not about the aesthetic of 48 frames as much as it is about improving the 3D experience and helping people's brains to resolve the images that they're seeing. If you watch any 24 frames a second movie, you see that lateral movement you get when a camera pans or tracks sideways and there's that juddering. That's what he's talking about when he's talking about the lateral edge detection. 48 frames cleans that up hugely and makes it much easier to look at. then I suppose my response to it kind of makes more sense because, you know, I thought the 3D was fantastic. Mm -hmm. Like, really fantastic. Uh, and fantastic, not only that you sometimes felt you could touch things, yeah, like mm. in front of you, but also that at almost every moment you felt that there was a three-dimensional image being created, that there were aspects of the movie that were kind of, well, three-dimensional, sculptural, yeah, that yeah. Kind of, you know, was using space in a different way. The space seemed to come to you mm. in a way, you know, that is not typical of, of even 3D, yeah, viewing normally mm-hmm. um so i thought in that sense it was a great success because you know the 3d was was smooth you know and it was beautiful and you felt different about the movie i mean the film is an experience to watch uh uh in 3d and imax right yeah um it really is so not full full imax because it's not a full full imax film but it's on the biggest screen in the country mm. filling your field of vision and it's astonishing just i, I mean there's that shot of um, the middle sun, the most interesting sun, mm. making friends with the whale. It's a shot from below that they're sort of silhouetted. The camera's looking mm. up at the sky and at the surface of water, and they're holding your hand to mm. fin. And I knew that shot was coming, because I'd seen it in the previous film, and it's also a publicity shot, I think, that's been mm. used. And even though I knew it was coming, when it showed up, I was more, I was surprised at how emotionally affected I was by it. Just the scale of it on that mm. screen. Unbelievable. It was yes. beautiful. I mean, it's interesting because I went into the second screening looking for the the, the use of uh, uh, the 48 frames per second mm. and not being very successful at that. I mean, you know, my detection skills at that were not brilliant. Mm. Um, but actually what I got most from it was just appreciating the framings, the composition, the use of color, the way that, you know, the imagery is so striking, the way that the action scenes, you know, some of the compositions of the images in the action scenes, how they, you know, how the composition itself is dramatic and exciting yeah, and contributes to that sense of kind of, of movement, of escape, of entrapment, mm-hmm. whatever is going on kind of emotionally uh, at that moment. Uh, I, I just think it's so impressive, you know, mm-hmm. technically and visually and in terms of, the use of the medium, I just think it's superb. It was an extraordinary experience to watch it this way. I mean, it is the way to see it. Like we said before on the previous podcast, if you're going to see it, you should be seeing it in 3D and preferably at at least an IMAX digital, which is what we saw it at then. And having seen it in this format now, I would say you're doing yourself out of the experience you could have Mm. by not seeing this. Though I appreciate it's few and far between. There's only a few IMAX, full IMAX cinemas around. It's, It's a trip, right? We spent half a tank of petrol... Six hours on the road, mm. fifteen pounds on a congestion charge, sixteen pounds on parking, mm. twenty-five pounds each on tickets to see this today. Right, it's an expensive mm. one-off day out. So, like, it's you have to—that's a commitment. Mm. You know, if you're outside of London or Manchester or wherever the other IMAXs are, 
But I mean, for the one-off experience, it's completely. I thought it was amazing. Mm. I thought it was amazing. The thing I would say about the the high frame rate is, I agree with everything you say about what it brings to the film. It's it it makes things richer, clearer, more beautiful, crisper. All of those things. It has a different texture, you know. As far as you know. <laughs> no, I mean, uh, I mean, what I couldn't tell was you know the movement from one to yeah. the other. But I thought the film as a whole had a depth of texture. Yeah, sure. Know? Um, but I would say when it was switching back to 24 frames per second, sometimes, like I say, one shot after another and then back and forth, back mm. and forth very quickly. If what James Cameron is saying is that the only or primary consideration was to help people resolve the 3D image mm. as opposed to for the aesthetic, you know, properties mm. of it, then I think he should have been bolder. I would like to see, like, they, they spent God knows how long on this movie. God knows how much money, right? They have not made this movie and not looked at it all in high frame rate, right? So they've made the decision they believe is right as to what they put in high frame rate and not, right? Mm. So it's not that I don't trust them, but I think that the switches back and forth, from my perspective, were distracting enough that it never kind of took me out of things. Although it might have done if this was the first time I'd seen it, maybe, because I was paying so much attention to the technology and the image and that sort of thing the first time that I was I was doing less so this time having seen it once already. Mm. When it would switch back and forth, the, I was just thinking, why have you switched 24 frames a second now? Why not keep it? Why not stay in 48 frames a second? I didn't... And And if, and if it's just about helping you resolve the image more clearly... And otherwise, kind of being scared of the high frame rate, which is kind of what he sounds like. Like when he's sort of saying, "I didn't understand them that way." To me, he's sort of saying, like when he talks about the glassiness of of some footage, you know, when he talks about dialogue scenes. Mm. I mean, he's uh, to me, I I think he's effectively talking about the soap opera effect there. Um, He must have like tried it that way and seen it that way and gone, "No, that's that's not what I want." But because of the way it jumps. And because of how happy I was with the high frame rate image, I thought, I wish you would have just stuck with this. Do you know? Well, what I, mean? I don't. I don't. I don't at all. And I thought he was very illuminating in that uh, moment where he says, "This is not a format like Cinerama. This is a tool." So if you think about it as kind of like I don't know, lighting or something, right? Where you know you're lighting for for effect and for emotion. Right, so then I think this choice about, you know, how you divide those worlds. So underwater, it's always forty-eight. You know, on top, it kind of depends what you want the shot to convey. Then I think, you know, fair enough. That's great. You know, that it's kind of being used in those ways. I mean, I, I was, I don't, I didn't hate the switching back and forth. I just, like I say, I was always going, why the, why not just keep it in high frame rate? It looks so good. Well, I think the whole film looks so good. Yeah, yeah, it does. But kind of, let's explore a little bit. So what did you get out of the second viewing? Forget the technical thing, because I think it actually it's a distraction, really. Mm. And let's just go back to the film as a whole, because, you know, that that technical thing is just a tool to help convey, yeah, an experience or an idea or to dramatize something. So, so, so back to the film, what did you see in the second viewing? What did you notice? What was highlighted for you that maybe wasn't as clear in the first screen? Um, the second time through, I was getting bored during the first kind of, I don't know if it's an hour, but the first movement of the film, mm. essentially before they leave and join the water folk. Mm. 
Um, yeah, I mean, there were, there were things I was interested in still, and things that I thought were, were beautiful and so all the same as before. But I was much less involved in the story. This is quite slow. I was also getting used to the switching. I mean, that's part of the experience was, was going, okay, questioning, you know, why is it going back and forth and so on. Um, but it was once they got back into the water, I thought this has come alive, mm. you know, which I think I more or less felt the first time as well. Like this is where the film just shows up and becomes something so special and so different and so interesting and so beautiful. And so incredibly beautiful. But what the second screening brought out for me was actually in the first part, mm. you know, because when they're running in those trees, just like the look of the flowers, you know, the texture of the greenery, um, the use of 3D when they're behind branches and hiding and things like that, mm. right? I just thought that was that was amazing in a way that I didn't particularly the first time. Cameron's very interesting with the use of the emergence effect, which is what it's called when things come out of the screen at you. Because, as I said in the previous podcast, things pokey-pokey coming mm. out of the screen is just not something that cinema... 3D cinema is really done in mm. the kind of current generation of it. It's people really associate 3D cinema with it still, but people have really moved away from that in the last mm. 10 years, 15 years, basically since the first Avatar and that wave of 3D. Um, and what Cameron does with it is interesting because he will have things emerge from the frame, but at the edges, mm. and it will be things like a branch, foliage, things like mm. that. So, And if you were to look at the edge of the frame and pay attention to it, you go, this is wrong. Mm. There's a leaf on my side of the screen, half cut off by the fact there's, you know, the frame ends. It, it, it's an image that destroys itself. It mm. looks weird, but you don't pay attention to it because it's at the edge, because it's out of focus. Your eye is being drawn to another part of the screen, the center, wherever the focus is, and it just becomes something that brings you in to the film, brings you into the world. It's it's fascinating that he does that. He did this in Avatar as well. I thought, um, you know, the way that uh, the 3D was used as a dramatic component in the storytelling was just absolutely brilliant. And, and actually, that became clear to me in the opening hour. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Uh, and particularly the, the, the action sequences in the trees. Um, so, and, and through things like there's, well, I, I suppose what one can call just composing an image in three dimensions, because you really got that, that sense that it was being composed, but that a lot of composition now had that sculptural sense, yeah, that it was mm. kind of taking place in three-dimensional space, yeah. uh, or a very, very superb illusion of it. So the, you know, the best I've seen, really. Yeah, uh, the high frame rate really, really, really helps mm. with that feeling of solidity to what you're seeing. Mm. It's pretty astonishing. Um, it, it's just it gives you this extra clarity to what you're seeing, mm. and 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 Christmas, and also the size of the IMAX screen and the, and the, the resolution of the projection. Mm. I think it's 4K. Um, I think that's what the BFI told me on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, which, you know, I suppose 4K stretched over, you know, a screen the size of a few houses is actually not that great. But, you know, you're sitting far enough away from it. It's, and, and, and IMAX um, very carefully control the, the kind of dimensions of, of their cinemas so that everyone's getting the right sort of view and so on. Um, so, I mean, it just, it, it just looked incredible on, on that screen. And, you know, every time... It, it's funny, actually... And I did think this the first time as well, is how much it reminds me of those IMAX nature documentaries that you get. I mean, yeah. it's funny, in the BFI, in the lobby, in the foyer before going into the film, there's these posters which said, 
IMAX has been to space 28 times or something like that, you know, showing off that we've sent our cameras here, there, and everywhere. And, and one of the things that I used to see a lot of in IMAX when we had the IMAX in Birmingham, mm. and that's what really pissed me off, quite frankly, is the fact that, you know, I don't mind spending all this money for, for a one-off trip to see an experience, but we could have had it in Birmingham. I wouldn't have had to do all of that. Mm. I wouldn't have had to get you up at 4.30 in the morning. Mm. However, one of the things I used to see at the, the, the IMAX in Birmingham all the time was those nature documentaries. Mm. And again, IMAX would really carefully control you know, the way these were shot so that the, the, the stereo separation between the two cameras was just so, so it mimicked um, a kind of the natural separation between your eyes. So it just looked, it looked so natural when you were mm. when you were sat there in cinema watching this. And, and James Cameron himself had done, I don't, know if, I don't know if it was, don't think it was with IMAX cameras, but it was with 3D cameras going down to the Titanic, the, yeah. the wreck, because he, he loves all that. And you can see all of his experience and love for all of that sort of stuff in this film, going underwater and all this. You can also see this kind of legacy of IMAX essentially going, we can, we can show you the natural world in all of this clarity and all of this depth and all, all this scale. Mm. Um, and now it's been made... You know, it's been re- like essentially there's a lot of the film is like one of those do- nature documentaries but with you know a revenge plot on top of it and you go okay now the fishes go to war and also with a completely <laughs> created world yeah you know which i think the other thing that i found so impressive was well this created world this fictional world that is created uh with these fictional beings and with such enormous attention to detail I mean, you know, I was looking at just in the fight sequences, mm. you know, the way that the men would stand, right? And the way that they would perch their feet, right? And they all have like one toe bigger than the other, right? Mm. And yeah, the way that it's kind of almost uh, like clawing into the tree, mm. right? I mean, just kind of, you know, it's amazing detail, right? And yet important, it gives you a sense of these people, the skills, the way they've adapted to this world, yeah, the, um, the way that they're different from the other beings, yeah. Mm. Um, so I kind of, yeah, very impressive. Something I noticed this time that clarifies, I think, something I'd been thinking from the first screening is how poorly written I think the two mother characters are. One of them is um, Neytiri, which is Jake Sully's wife, played by Zoe Saldana, and the other is the... Um, the Queen of the Fish People, I don't know her name, uh, and she's played by Kate Winslet. Mm. And that character in particular, I think, is a real failure. I I think she essentially, and with no qualification, is just a bitch. And I don't mean that to say, oh, it's funny. No, she's, I, I, I don't like I don't like the fact that she's been written to be just negative, naysaying, all this all the time. Like there's no there's no depth to that character. I don't I, I get that she can be the one who's wary of these people coming to them mm. and everything. I think that's fine. I don't think there's enough depth to it. And I, and I also think, and I definitely thought this the first time, when the, uh, the five of them show up at the water people for the first time, and they're all very suspicious of them, they say, we need sanctuary, we request sanctuary, or Turu, or whatever they call it. Um, they're wary of them, and the Kate Winslet character says something like, you know, you shouldn't be hiding, you should be standing up for your people, whatever it was. But... What she doesn't ask, which she needs to, I think, for this scene to really fully make sense, is what are you running from? Is the danger coming here? Are we in danger now? Mm. Like They don't establish that at all, mm. right? She, they've got to be running for a reason. Mm. We know what that reason is, but they don't know who's on the tail who might be coming five minutes later, you know? I think that's really... I think that's really poor because... And that sounds like it's just a minor nitpick. I think it's important to that scene for it to, for it to fully make sense. And later... 
you, know, you have all this stuff where um, the whalers attack, you know, the the the, the very important whale who's the Kate Winslet character's sister, but it's still established that Jake is the only one who knows at this point, or Jake and the Jake Sully family are the only ones who know at this point that really this is a trap and that uh, the Stephen Lang character is involved and he's done this deliberately. The fish people haven't clocked this at this point, and it's only basically when they're facing Stephen Lang down, they see him on that ship, that the wife goes, this is about you, talking to Jake. Like, she should have figured this out by now. It's not a coincidence that shit starts happening when he shows up. That's not just a failure of her. It's a failure of the writing of the entire film because what it also raises is um, the ethical and moral failings of the father whom you're supposed to look as a hero because, you know, he and his wife both must know that in escaping this place to keep it safe, right, that's why they're, they're leaving, mm. but they're also bringing danger to someone else. And in fact... And they get of, there and see that she's pregnant. And yes. still, you know... And also we do see that, you know, the world they go into, they have not only put in danger, but actually as a result of their actions... You know, tons of people die and villages get burned. And yeah, so there's like a you know terrific mm. kind of human cost for that. So I think that whole thing could have used a lot more work for sure. I think it was interesting. And this is completely nothing to do with Avatar. This is to do with seeing it at the BFI IMAX. That two of the um, trailers we saw before the film were not trailers. They were these kind of special pleading feature presentations, come and see my movie, we shot it with IMAX sort of thing. Mm. Um, so one of them was for Creed 3, and it's Michael B. Jordan who's starring and directing in that film, mm. talking about shooting it with IMAX cameras. such a dull trailer, let me tell you. Yeah, so like I say, not a trailer really, because it's his presentation, he's talking, and you'll see mm. behind the scenes footage, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, he's, and he's discussing okay, shooting with IMAX. Very poor salesmanship. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he, t- and he said nothing really interesting. He said, it, I mean, it was so dumb. And I like Michael B. Jordan a lot. I love him. Um, and I think he's an really smart. But he's saying things like, it's not like any boxing movie you've seen before. We wanted them to bring the emotion and the story into the ring at the end. It's like, oh, like every boxing film I've ever yeah. seen. It's the point of the end of a boxing film. You know, kind of really dumb. Um, and this thing about, you know, you're in the IMAX, you're going to want to see this in the IMAX. We shot it with IMAX. It's like, great. Wanna... I mean, I, that sounds fucking exciting. I've got to give it that. But you know, I, know. I don't need them to, to be... Says, Do you want to see every drop of sweat? Hello, have you seen Raging Bull? Like, yeah. yeah. Um, and the other one was was Mission Impossible Seven. Actually, that looks fantastic. Yeah. I, must say. I, d- I don't know if they discussed doing it in IMAX. I don't think I don't know if they talked about shooting it with IMAX. I'm not sure that they have. But they, yeah. what they were showing off was what they're calling the biggest, most dangerous stunt of the film. They said we always start by shooting that. I guess because if Tom Cruise dies there, then it's the done. Over. <laughs> <laughs> you may as well find out if he'll die or not at the start. Um, and he's and he's jumping a motorbike off. I mean, actually, to be honest, I thought if that's the biggest stunt in the film, I don't know how psyched I am about this film because it really is just jumping a motorbike off a cliff. Oh God, no! I thought it was amazing. I thought it was tremendous. Are you kidding? What I, and what you I could like, really see it was Tom Cruise doing it. Of course, yeah, and, you know. and that's what they're selling, right? Is of the course. reality? You know, you're behind the scenes, you're seeing the rap, you're seeing all this, and you're going, "It's Tom Cruise really doing it, sucking himself up." What I really liked about it, and and like I say. Boring to show me a proper trailer, really. <laughs> but if you are going to show me this, what I did like was seeing Christopher McQuarrie in the video village watching the footage of him doing it live mm. with kind of his head in his hands, mm. like genuinely fearing that Tom Cruise was was going to die. Mm. You know, I mean, I thought that is what's selling the emotion. <laughs> mm. Even though that's not the film, that is really selling it to me that like, that's, whoa, this, this guy really does these fucking stunts and that's how... That's mm. how scary it is. The point is just to say that it's interesting you get the, we've got, we've had occasionally sh- things like this outside 
of the IMAX. But I think this is probably a bit of a, um, you know, it's, it's something probably actually quite common to full IMAX screenings because it's like, it's, it's using the, the show offness, the specialness of that screening mm. to say, and here's our special thing, mm. here's our special trailer, here's our special, you're, you're the, you're the in crowd, you're the film crowd, you know what you want, here's the stuff you'll be interested in. It's interesting that they use that to sell it where they, outside of that, you hardly see those things, mm. you know, we've got two of them today. I thought, to me, the, um, you know, there were just uh, things that came alive in in this screening uh, almost dramatically. So, you know, there's a scene where all the seahorses are, you know, are, are going to war and their wings go up. And actually mm. the act of their wings go up is almost like, you know, a dramatic moment. And so cause it also fills the frame with color mm. yeah, yeah, yeah. and everything else. Um, I thought the the moments with the Sigourney Weaver doing the teenage girl, where she's communicating with the sea life, and it glows, mm. right? And um, she begins to have power over it, and it's all kind of filled with light. I thought that was just beautiful. beautiful. And you know, and all those lights come towards you, yeah, like the bioluminescence yeah. of the of the wildlife. I thought that was like extraordinary. Yeah, and then I think as I, I told you previously, what what really made me pay attention to as well was just the angles and the compositions of of, mm. of each of the images in the action sequences, you know. So when they're they're being trapped, the, the ship has sunk and they're in the water, you know. They're trying to find an escape, you know, and just kind of the lines, yeah, that um, that the camera creates are themselves dramatic. You know, you get the sense. You know, the characters are either kind of becoming asphyxiated or struggling, right? Or that they're finding a way out. Like, you know, and it's really a lot of it is just done through the lines that the camera creates in conjunction with how it's being shown to you, the lines of the water mm. and the possible escape route. And it seemed to me that it was both like dramatic and beautiful, you know, and purposeful and meaningful, right? Like, you know, and it was just kind of, you know, through a choice of image, really. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I thought that was like, it, it became viscerally kind of clear watching it in this format. It all feels so natural. Well, to me, it raises all kinds of questions. And I was trying to think, you know, why am I getting so upset that all of these like film studies professionals are poo-pooing the film and, you know, saying I'm not, you know, I couldn't be bothered to go see it and whatever. And I think the reason why it's upsetting for me is because the film achieves a kind of detailed mise-en-scene that the very same people adore in filmmakers like Preminger or Minnelli mm. or Ophuls, right? Um, you know, so this is a film where you think, you see, everything's been tested, everything's been thought through, right? Kind of, you know, these are all cho- choices that are the result of great consideration and thought by, you know, an army of incredibly talented people, probably the best in the world in their way. Mm. And also, actually, that I think requires us to think about cinema in a way that is connected to the past, because I do think that you know, seeing this film like a Minnelli musical or something, yeah, in which kind of the color and the camera movement and the decor all kind of, yeah, combine to kind of give an emotion or, yeah, and mm-hmm. tell the story. I think, you know, the film is doing that. This film is doing that or is attempting to do that, you know, but uh, but actually it's doing it through other means. And I think one of the means is through the shift in the frame rate that you, mm-hmm. you, know, you talk about, right? And I think... The challenge for people who continue to be interested in cinema 
is to figure out a way of talking about that, of recognizing it, like I'm not able to at the moment. <laughs> yeah. But then also of being able to talk about it, you know, the way that one does about, you know, lighting or something. Yeah. And so I, I suppose, you know, the combination of it drawing on, you know, traditional ways of seeing, but also creating new challenges for seeing and appreciating mm-hmm. is why I think it's so important to see this film and to see it, yeah, in, in IMAX and 3D now. Mm. While you have the opportunity. Yeah, while you can, because, you know, my sadness around these things really is that once they go, they go. You know, so when, I mean, about 10 years ago, I saw Gatsby and I saw it in 2D and in 3D. And in my view, in 3D, it becomes a masterpiece, right? Because the whole theme of Gatsby reaching out across the bay to that green light, to things that, you know, he can almost touch, Mm. but, you know, it's it's kind of always within reach, but he can't grasp it. That's the 3D, right? And then when was the last time you had a chance of seeing that film in 3D? Never again, you know, because it's never in release again. It, It costs a lot of money, you know, to have a, like a 3D release of an old film. I mean, maybe in 50 years, they'll do like with the Hitchcock film, yeah? Dialing for Murder. Dialing for Murder. Yeah. But, you know, it's kind of, it's going to be very, very, very difficult yeah, yeah to see it as it's meant to be seen. And uh, so I can't underline enough if, uh, you know, if you're interested in cinema at all, you should really see this film. All right. Well, thank you very much for listening. We are eavesdropping at the movies and we are on. Apple Podcasts, Audible, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud and YouTube. On social media, we're on Facebook and Twitter. And the website is eavesdroppingatthemovies.com. Thank you very much for listening. Bye-bye.